we've got a, a wonderful um, group of verses this morning, and I just want to say, um, isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord, speaking of gathering together and worshiping, amen? Um, and I want to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. chapter 3 will be our focus for this morning, and we will be in verses 18 to verse 1 of chapter 4. This is one of those texts where the should have put a break at the end of, of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We'll read right through from chapter 3, verse 18, right to verse 1 of chapter 4. Um, the title um, for this message is Instructions for the Christian Home. Begin by first uh, reading our text, and then after we can seek uh, to apply it. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord... You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Um, in these verses, Paul is describing for us what are the distinguishing marks of a Christian family, a Christ-centered family. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God established the family as part of his created order. God says in verse 24 of chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And his design for marriage reflects the covenant relationship between God and his people through its relational unity and intimacy. It also provides the context for procreation and the continued expansion of his people through the godly heritage of faith that is intended to be cultivated in the context of the home. But when sin entered the world, the family unit was devastated. It was devastated. For example, we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the strained relationship between the husband and the wife. As God said to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. That word contrary in there. Um, the ESV is the only translation 
that rightly divides that word, and it becomes a hugely important word to understand what verse 16 is saying. The wife, her desire is to be contrary to her husband. She wants to be the husband. And we see here the covenant concept that marriage was intended to display has grown distorted, and the spiritual habitat of the home was thus greatly affected by the fall. But through the redemptive power of Christ, God has provided a way for our homes to be redeemed to their original design and to be restored. In fact, Scripture is clear. Any to build our homes apart from the Lordship of Christ is futile. For as Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. See, too many of us are trying to build our homes the way we want to build them. But the Lord says, unless I build it, your labors will be in vain. And so, for the Lord to build our homes, our families must be established under his authority, according to his instructions, and with his ongoing involvement. That means every aspect of our homes must be offered in submission to his authority. And as build, builders who diligently labor, we must participate in his work according to his design for the family. And what we're learning is all of life must be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of it. Jesus Christ must be lord over every area and every aspect of our life. He is to be lord over our thought life, lord over our work life, lord over our civic life must also be Lord over our family. God is the one who designed the family, correct? Mm -hmm. It's not the product of culture or society. Um, it's not the creation of government officials or philosophers who came up with the idea and concept of marriage and the family. The family is a result of the infinite wisdom of God and is designed for your and my good. It is designed for the good of the church. It is designed for the good of our nation. It is, a, it is God's blessing upon any people that will follow his blueprint for the family. No nation will be any stronger than its family unit is strong. No church will be any stronger than its family units are strong. For it is the families that come together to form a nation. It is the families that gather together to form a church. And on the other hand, when the family is compromised, we see what happens. Society implodes. When the family is compromised, churches crumble before our eyes. When the family is compromised, government becomes run by incompetent tyrants. The family is the most essential building block for the overall common good. It is a grace of God. The family. And so we have a very important text before us this morning, and really this affects um, all of our lives. And in these nine verses, Paul provides a brief but direct instructions for the Christian household. And you'll see these outlined on the back of your bulletin notes. I've broken this text up into three sections, 
And so we begin with number one, as in verses 18 through 19, Paul first addresses a word to wives and husbands. And we see this beginning in verse 18, as we notice first, a submissive wife. As Paul begins this section by saying, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I realize how inflammatory this word submission is in today's culture. And in spite of its straightforward clarity, Paul's simple statement has been widely challenged in our day, even by those claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. Sad to say there are many churches who would rather gag before they preach the word submission. But there it is, right here. It's in your Bible. It's in my Bible. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, these two words, submit to, is the Greek compound word, hupotasso, and it means to subject oneself. It's actually a military term, and it's the idea of putting oneself under someone. It was used for a soldier to line up under his commanding officer in order to follow his instruction. And so in this context, that means wives are to line up under their own husbands who are placed over you in authority. It's not that the husband and the wife are equal in authority. No, wives are to submit to their husband's headship, the leader of the family. Now to be clear, this is not saying that wives are not equal in redemption. or not equal in um, a value of God's kingdom. Submission does not imply inferiority, but rather directly relates to the nature of marriage and the corresponding roles of the husband and the wife. Husbands are intended to be faithful caretakers of their wives, and wives are the loving compliments to their husband. The Lord says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him an helper suitable for him. Submission is not a term that subordinates the worth of the wife she is an equal image bearer in the sight of God. For after all, Galatians 3.20 clearly affirms there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then let me add this also, this word hupotasso. The concept is putting oneself under, not by compulsion, but willingly. In other words, Christian wives who have been faithfully loved and protected by their husbands will readily submit to their headship over them in a God-fearing household. This type of submission cannot be imposed upon her. She must willingly choose to be submissive. And yet, it should also be noted, this is not a suggestion. This is something that's just sort of tossed out there and you can take it or leave it. No, it's a command from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come through the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, to the church in Colossae, and to every believer in every generation. Mm. And so, Paul says, wives, submit to you, your husbands. Now, the word husbands here means a married man, and even in a somewhat indirect way, God establishes here that marriage is only between one man and one woman. There's never a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, as such as an abomination against God. And then, please notice at the end of the verse why you should do this. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. 
And uh, fitting here means what is suitable, um, what is proper, okay? Um, but when he adds in the Lord, it speaks to how he designed and commands the family to operate. And again, this is a matter of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is on the heels of verse 17, where we ended last week, and he says that whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's first on the list? Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So ultimately, a wife submits to her husband, not so much because of him, but because of the Lord. The Lord is over her husband. The Lord is over her family. The Lord is over her own life. And therefore, we must also be in submission because this pleases the Lord. Now, as I've already mentioned, this isn't a popular teaching in um, today's culture. The feminist movement has invaded the church for some time now. It's corrupted the minds of countless pastors and ministers as well as wives in the pews. And so pastors say if they even preach this verse, will attempt to water this down or explain it away somehow versus saying what it clearly states. They won't use it in any sort of pre-marriage counseling and certainly would never refer to it in a wedding ceremony itself. But ultimately, what I want you to see, um, women, is that this is a matter of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Through being obedient to the Lord. And God has asked something of you that is very difficult and and very challenging because there's not a woman here today who has a perfect husband. <laughs> He's a flawed sinner just as you are, but nevertheless, the, the call is why submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now, real quick before we move on to the husbands, I, I want you to see what else is said in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open, um, just flip back two books to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul expounds on this verse a little bit more. Um, Thank you. We need that. <laughs> and in case you don't know, Colossians and Ephesians were written um, very close to the same time as Paul was in prison when he wrote both of these epistles. In fact, they're sometimes referred to as twin epistles, um, as they were passed around in the early church together and have a lot of um, common themes throughout them. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says the very same thing. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so here again, we see your submission to your husband is a reflection of your submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. And head here refers to authority, headship. Even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And the only footnote that I would put on that word everything is as long as it does not contradict the word of God. Then you are to be in submission to your husband lined up under his authority. And we all recognize what a tall order this is for you wives, but um, let me encourage you all by saying this. 
Christ is not um, requiring anything of you that he himself has not personally demonstrated in his own life when he came down to earth. In reality, all he is asking you to do is to follow his example of humbling yourself to be in submission to the will of God, which is exactly what Jesus did when he left all of that glory of heaven behind, and he took upon himself the form of a bondservant, a slave, and came down into this world of woe, got into our skin and subjected himself into this world of mockery and the scorn and the mistreatment and the assassinations attempt, and ultimately his crucifixion. No one will ever subject themselves to the extent that Jesus did for us, but what he is asking of you, wives, is submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let me also encourage you with this. Jesus said more than once, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And if you would, with a willing heart, um, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, um, God has ways by which he will exalt you. One of those being Proverbs 31, 28. Your children will rise up while you bless them. Because of the example that you are setting before their eyes. They can see dad. They can see his faults. You are choosing to humble yourself beneath this man. This is speaking volumes to your children, women, um, of how they too must humble themselves beneath the Lord and prepare the way for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. By the grace of God, you can do this. You can do this. Mm -hmm. Not in your own flesh, not in your own ability. You cannot do this. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is all sufficient to lift you up and to give you the strength to accomplish his will. So in verse 18, we see the submissive wife. Now we turn to verse 19 back in Colossians, and we see the sacrificial husband. Amen? Now it's our turn. And uh, please notice what it says. Husbands, love your wives. And on the surface, this might seem light, but there's so much in this word love. It means far more than just have romantic feelings towards your wife. It is the Greek word that is the highest of all the Greek words of love. There are other words that Paul could have used, like phileo, which means more of a, a friendship um, type of love. But this is agapeo, agape, um, which means to love um, continuously, sacrificially, means to love unconditionally, means to treasure her, um, to delight in her, and to show esteem and honor to her. And it's an imperative, which means it's a command that God has for each and every one of us, whether we feel like it or not. That's inconsequential. The fact is that Christ, through Paul, is commanding every husband to make whatever sacrifices necessary for the good of your wife. Then he adds, and do not be harsh with them, which implies that there will be times when, let's face it, they may frustrate you. Or you guys aren't getting along. Or you're rubbing shoulders this week. But when that happens, husbands, do not be harsh with them. This word harsh means don't become embittered towards them. 
Do not get all worked up and let a small thing become a big thing. And you end up just flying off the handle saying something you actually don't even mean. And the only way, again, you can do this is for the love of Christ to be shed abroad in your hearts, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we need, men. Self-control. We need for God to override anything that might be um, frustrating us and to give us a, a loyal and committed love for our wives and agape love. And so, as Paul writes this, rather than putting women down, he's actually elevating them and putting them on the highest pedestal by saying, husbands, you must love your wives. And you need to esteem her and, and, and treasure her and consider her like a weaker vessel, which is always a, a way more valuable and expensive piece of pottery. The weaker it is, the more valuable and precious it is, as opposed to an old tin can, which has no value to it at all. I want you to turn back to Ephesians 5 once again. I read for the women, now we need to hear what it says for the men. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Oh. <laughs> in Ephesians 5.25, Paul repeats what he says in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives. Um, but Paul, to um, uh, what extent, um, uh, what should it look like? You notice what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, he went all the way to Calvary and submitted himself to the horrible, horrific death of a cross. And that's the example that God sets before us men. That there is no sacrifice too great for us to make in order to love our wives. The measure of a husband's love be that of Jesus' love for the church, his bride. And husbands, let me be clear, this is um, not an exaggeration. This is setting the bar so high that the only way that a man can even make progress towards this is by God being at work in his life, day of his life. Jump down to verse 28, Ephesians 5, as Paul continues. He says, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, a husband must be willing to set aside his own wants and his own um, needs and desires for the sake of being united to his wife and they become one flesh so that whatever is hurting you that I am doing or that I am not doing that I'm not callous to what that is and that hurts me too why? because we're one we're one and when I can make my wife happy then that makes me happy when I upset you, that actually really upsets me as well. That's what Paul is saying when he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. In the same way, you are one. You are one. So if your wife is in pain and you've hurt her over here and you're just standing over here totally 
disconnected and the one who's actually breaking her down with your words or, or works. What are you doing? You're supposed to be one. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so, men, again, what a challenge, right? What a challenge. This is really where life is lived if you're married. It's really where the rubber meets the road. And uh, let me just share one more verse with you before we move on. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And, and for you who um, have unbelieving spouses, if you want to go back and listen to our sermon in First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6, that deals directly with all of that. And I just can fit that all into this sermon. But you can go and check that out. We've got a recording of that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And the older men know this by now, I hope. But you younger men, you need to really get to know your wife. That's what this phrase, in an understanding way, is all about. It's intimacy, knowing. You need to know her intimately. You need to know her her personality, you need to know her strengths, you need to know her weaknesses, you need to know where her standing is and walk with the Lord, you need to know what she likes, you need to know what she doesn't like. In really practical stuff, you need to know these things. You need to become an expert on your wife. You need to know your wife. For she is like no one else's wife. She is not like your mother. She is not like your sister is a one-of-a-kind jewel made in the image of God and is co-heir with Christ. This is your wife, men. You need some men to man up, right? And there's no one in the entire planet that has been wired by God like this woman made wired. So he says, husbands, live with your wives and Understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Our wives are incredibly strong in so many different ways, and, and so we must show them great honor and respect for all the incredible things they do for us men. But Peter here does recognize that there is a unique, soft femininity about that God has built into a woman, and us men need to recognize that. Took me for a little while, you know, that sarcasm that you might toss out there with another guy at work, you're repeatedly beating your wife with it over the head. That might not work with her. She's incredibly delicate. She's precious to you. And as the weaker vessel, you will hold her softly and be gentle with her. And then he says, since they are heirs with you of the grace she is equal in the kingdom of God with you. She's just playing a different position on the team. That, that's all. That's all it is. The fellow heir of the grace of life, which, by the way, does not refer to eternal life. That's not the grace that Jesus is speaking of. But to the true and intimate companionship belongs only to those who are possessors of God's most gracious, blessed gift of grace in this life. Marriage. What gift? That's the grace he's speaking to. And Peter labels marriage this way because grace means unmerited, undeserved, 
divine providence given to man regardless of his attitude toward the giver. The entire world benefits from this gift and grace of marriage. Intimate companionship and marriage is the richest blessings of this life and was a foreign concept really to this even first century Greco-Roman world where everything was sort of prearranged and the women had zero rights and their job was to pump out um, babies and never to leave the kitchen. No worth over a backyard animal. But God has graciously given us this gift and he elevates wives since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he cautions us. He says at the end of verse 7, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter says your prayers are going to have some breaks on them until you humble yourself and love your wife as Christ loved the church. So husbands, this is God's call upon your life. It is to die to self. As Jesus said, we are to take up our cross daily, follow him. And there is not a spirit-filled woman on this planet who would not gladly submit to a husband who loves her like Christ loves the church. So we understand what the Lord requires of us. Well, that brings us to point number two. And, and the next part of the household that Paul has a word to is to children and their parents. Paul now addresses the children that are born in this marriage. And this begins in verse 20. Children, please notice what it says. Children, obey your parents in everything. Children, when your parents ask you to do something, you are to obey your parents. Okay? You might have clarified the first time. This isn't one of those things that are up for uh, negotiation. When you were to be obedient the first time, your mother or father says to you to do something because they have complete and total authority over your life. The verb obey your parents is in the present tense is an imperative it's a command. It means constantly, continually, morning, noon, and night, you're to obey your parents. Parents, this means you're going to have to teach obedience. Obedience. You're going to have to require obedience. You're going to have to discipline for disobedience. And this word in the Greek, kupa kalu, is another compound word that's Two words are put together in the original Greek language. And the main root here, um, akau, which means to listen, and then the prefix is put in front of it, kupo, which means under. Or we would say today in our culture, um, listen up, which implies that you're under if you have to listen up. And so it's describing how your parents are over you, and they are given the authority to tell you what is required of you. They can tell you what time it is to go to bed. They can tell you when it is to wake up, uh, what you're going to eat. They can tell you what chores you're to do around the house and assign those to you. Your parents can tell you what you're allowed to listen to, what movies you can watch, where you're allowed to go, what time you need to be home. And as much as it feels like you know everything when we're a kid and they know nothing at all, watching out for your best interests. As long as you are living in their home, you are to obey your parents. 
Paul adds, in everything. In everything. That's an across-the-board authority. The only exception, again, to this would be if your parents required you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. Otherwise, you are to obey your parents. Your children need to understand that you are not fulfilling your obligation as a parent unless you are clear with your children. Children surely can ask parents questions when that's acceptable, but there is to be a compliant, humble, immediate obedience to your parents. Obey your parents in everything. And then at the end of verse 20, Paul gives us the motive for this obedience. For this pleases the Lord. So who cares who gets upset about this if it pleases the Lord? This should be pleasing then to you and to me. And so what Paul requires here is really just an extension of the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fifth Commandment, which says in Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother. And this goes much deeper than just obedience here. This speaks of the attitude um, behind the obedience. One thing to obey your parents and have a crummy attitude about it, right? Mumbling under your breath is it's something else to be obedient and to have a, a humble, submissive, obedient attitude before your parents. And by the way, did you notice the motivation to obey this? Listen to this, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You know why you'll live longer if you're obedient to your parents? Because in the Old Testament, if you were disobedient to your parents, or rather disrespectful to your parents, same thing, it requires a death penalty. You say, where's that verse? I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> in the very next chapter, Exodus 21, which expounds upon what was just said in verse 17, it says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. There it is. That would just wipe, about wipe out the United States right there. <laughs> okay? So children, we're to show honor to your mother and father, and you do that by obeying your big reason why our country is in anarchy is because fathers and mothers have given up their parental authority and it's like just letting the madhouse run wild. And they've let their children go and now it spills over into the streets, it spilled over into our society because they've never been disciplined at home and they've never been under the authority of their father and mother. But on the heels of that, Paul doesn't end there. And again, this is just Paul lying over. He's giving us just a few things at, at each turn here. But next we move on to a sensitive father. A sensitive father. Notice what it says in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, what that implies is that with this much authority given to a father... There is the danger of that father being too heavy-handed. We can probably all remember a time when our fathers, at least in our generation growing up, had a heavy hand. Here we're speaking of the father becoming unreasonable. 
of that father being too demanding, um, too strict. And so Paul has to put this caution out just to sort of pump the brakes a little bit on how you use this. So he says, Father, do not provoke your children. And what he means is do not provoke them unnecessarily. And maybe a softer word at a certain time could have made the same point. And when he gives the reason why, lest they become discouraged, the idea of this term is, so they won't lose heart. Don't be so domineering with them that you've lacked love, that you've lacked grace, that you've lacked even a sense of humor with your children, lest they become discouraged and lose heart. You don't want to be so domineering that your kids will think, I will never be good enough for my dad. All he does is point out where I'm wrong. He never points out the right that I have done. This word discourage is the idea of the wind being taken out of the ship in the boat. And so this is saying to us fathers, there are times we need to season our words with grace. At times we need to focus more on building up our children and encouraging them. But there are other times when there needs to be a clear line marked in the sand, fathers, that if you ever talk to your mother that way again, we're going to have a come to Jesus moment. Right? Okay? Then there's this last area that Paul speaks into, number three, a word to servants and masters. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this section as I actually just taught on these verses not even a year ago. Um, back in 1 Peter, you can go to our series, 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 21. We really went into some of the details, the first century application, what was going on in that time. But we do need to consider this verse for even though none of us, um, hopefully our masters are slaves here today, um, there are some principles that apply to the relationship um, between employer and employee. After all, nearly every home in their day had servants, and Christians needed to know um, how they were to act to their earthly masters. And we can draw from this um, that whatever you do for work matters to God. Mm -hmm. How you work matters to God. Mm -hmm. Whether you're an employer or employee, your work is vitally important to God. Whether or not you do a good job or whether or not you treat the people who work for you well. But please notice what it says in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Um, when Paul says obey, it's the same Greek word that we just looked at in verse 20, which means to listen one under rule, or that you're under. We're to listen to everything he tells you to do, and you are to do it. Bond servants obey in everything. So that's an all-encompassing, except again, whatever is contrary to the word of God. When he says in everything, he means all difficult things, and demanding things, and unpleasant things. And because how you obey your masters is very important to God. It is very important to the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, obey in everything those who are
are your earthly masters. And again, we see a common theme, submission. submission. At your place of employment, your boss becomes your earthly master. If you're a Christian, you have a master who's in heaven, who is Jesus Christ himself. So you have one, one on earth, you have one in heaven, and your obedience to your master in heaven in part is being fulfilled by your obedience to your earthly master. And then Paul gives specifics on what this obedience to an earthly master should look like. What do you mean, Paul? He states it first in the negative, and then he'll state it in the positive. So he begins with the negative, and he says, not by way of eye service. So in other words, don't just obey him by going through the motions as he's looking externally, pretending we're doing our best as people pleasers. But rather, Paul says, with sincerity of heart. And that literally means singleness of heart. One without a divided heart, a single-mindedness. And the idea is, is you're all in and focused when you come to work. You're, you're here to, to do work. You're not half in and, and half out. You don't have your body in one place and your mind somewhere else. You're here to get the job done and to get it done best of your God-given ability. And then he adds at the end of verse 22, fearing the Lord. And we need to take God very seriously in this. We need to have a, a reverential awe for Jesus Christ, and it will be evidenced by obeying what is said back in verse 17. And whatever you do, remember that? And word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you are all in at work, it is a reflection that you're all in with Jesus Christ. Whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. And let me just say quickly, tragically, we live in a day when the fear of the Lord is certainly missing from our, our society at large. It's missing in our churches, never mind our society. It's missing in our workplaces. But we don't fear the Lord. And it really affects even the marketplace. It is why you have workers today who don't show up for work. All right? Who cut corners every chance they get because they don't have the fear of the Lord. They're not working for the glory of God. And we should expect it from the world, but even by so-called Christians are not putting in a full day's work. Why? Because they lack the fear of the Lord. And this began sometime back, probably a hundred years or so in our culture, where it really started making an impression on things. But we've been on a massive downslide. And as we look around now, we see it absolutely everywhere. No one knows how to work. No one knows how to put in a good, hard day's work anymore. Therefore, it's hard to find good people to hire. We'll actually put in an honest day's work for the glory of God. Why? Because ultimately you're serving the Lord. Well, verse 23 really is a restatement of verse 22 with just some different words. And, and it's Paul's way of reinforcing what he just said, stating it a second time. He's essentially going to repeat everything that he just said. So in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, that's the restatement of verse 22 in everything. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. That parallels verse 22 where he says, with sincerity of heart. Heartily 
that's just another way of saying that. And what he's saying here is you should do your work wholeheartedly, and then he adds, as for the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is the one ultimately who is your master in heaven, and you are actually obeying him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. So at the end of verse 23, he says, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So what Paul is expecting of every servant in the first century, and we can make the extended application to us today in the 21st century, is that Christians should be the very best workers, whether down at the mill, out on the road doing deliveries, working out at the shop, wherever God has you, you should be doing the very best for the glory of God. In fact, your boss, even as an unbeliever, should look at your life and draw the conclusion, you know, these Christians are the hardest working people I have ever hired. I need some more Christians in this company. <laughs> right? They're so honest. They are filled with integrity. They give me their very best every day. They don't cause me any troubles. I never have to worry they're going to steal or if they're going to create division with my other workers. They're always pulling their load. They always show up on time. They give me a full day's work. I need some more Christians in this organization. Paul stresses to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.1, that such obedience and honor given by Christian slaves to their masters keeps the name of God and our doctrine from being spoken against. This is part of our, our witness. It's part of our evangelism. Why? Because they see our faith being lived out very practically. A lot more, obviously, to say, but you guys aren't listening to it enough. So, coming to verse 24. Paul gives two reasons for workers to obey their earthly masters. Positively, the Lord will repay them for their faithfulness. They can endure for now, Paul says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Your earthly boss may not give it to you, uh, give what you deserve, but you can be certain that the Lord will. Amen. The Lord will. He is the one who will assure the eternal compensation is what it should be. The Lord keeps flawless bookwork. And when the books are opened, beloved, you can trust you will receive your full reward. Amen. Where it says, you were really serving the Lord Christ. You're serving the Lord Christ. That's who you're serving. And he will pay you back with grace and generosity. And then Paul says there's a negative reason in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back to the wrong. He has done and there is no partiality. And so the warning is that the Lord will discipline without partiality in cases of disobedience. Paul acknowledged that the Christian slave Onesimus was responsible, if you remember, to repay what he had taken back from Philemon. The Christian slave is not to presume on his Christianity for some kind of justification. For disobedience, even as a slave. If the Christian slave has wronged his master or cheated him out of an honest day's work, that slave has to pay for the wrong. 
Even if we are God's children, we will reap what we sow. Because as Peter says in Acts 10, 34, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And lastly, a word for the masters. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, do unto others as you would have the Lord do unto you. Treat them fairly as God, you would hope, treats you. So when we reflect and look back at chapter 3 and sort of add this whole chapter together, he's been talking about the new man making this new home in the world of the first century in the New Testament of wife with this attitude, a husband with this attitude, children and parents with this attitude, servants and masters with this attitude would absolutely be a dramatic, shocking reality to the first century society. And it would still be true in our society today. Where we see homes falling apart, marriages are a joke, families, most without an active father involved, and everyone's too busy to care, everyone's plugged into their cell phones, where we have whole communities, there's no peace, no love in anyone's home, and all of these things the Bible talks about. There ought to be someone, some home, that we can lay out there and say, look, here's a home that fears the Lord. But where are they? Where are they? If Christianity is to affect our world, if it's to affect the world from the vantage point that affects the home, and it all goes back to the same thing as we've talked about over these last couple weeks, chapter 3, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Put off the old self and to put on the new self as you're being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who's created him. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 17, let the name of Christ guide you. And the result is going to be that you're not only going to be a new man, but a new wife and a new husband and a new child and a new parent and a new servant and a new master. And I really believe that if our homes can become what God has called them to be, they can become the cows to change the world. And Christianity will continue to go on in history as the agency that has brought about a great social reform. See, Christ knew you didn't, start, you didn't have to start a revolution to change the world. You needed to charge, change the hearts and minds of the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, Amen. the power of the gospel of grace. And that's what he's still using today to change the world once for at a time. That is our sermon for today. Thank you for your patience. If you need prayers, I'd like to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation, King of Kings. Amen.